Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Judith Heron, author of the book Ravenna, Capital of Empire, Crucible of Europe. Judith, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Well, it's very nice to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I think there's a lot to say about how I got interested in Ravenna, because I was taken there as a child or as a grumpy teenager, and my mother wanted to see the mosaics, and she knew that Ravenna was a wonderful place to visit, but I didn't, and I didn't particularly enjoy it. However, that was a very long time ago. And as I've gone back frequently, I've become completely intrigued by the way this wonderful city has preserved its amazing works of art and how interesting its history is. So although I've had a very mixed career um, working mainly in the field of Byzantine history, first in the 12th century with the letters of an archbishop and then later with iconoclasm, And then really back into the period of early Christendom, I wrote a book called The Formation of Christendom. So I've been looking at the whole Mediterranean world uh, through the 3rd to 15th centuries. And if that's not a big enough topic, I don't know what is. (laughs) It it was fascinating to to read you describe the... uh... The, the inspiration for the book in terms of that journey you took, because it, it feels as though in many ways you're, you're returning to that, that moment of, of inspiration. What led you to conclude that Ravenna was a, a topic that was deserving of a book unto itself? I was very shocked by the fact that when I was taken back as, a, as an adult with, with children to show, I wanted them to see how beautiful it was. We looked in the bookshops and we looked in the in the churches where there are lots of things to buy, and lo and behold, there were guidebooks of the very superficial sort, and there were lots of knickknacks to buy, but there wasn't a serious history of Ravenna. I discovered afterwards that there were indeed two or three books in English and many, many books in German about Ravenna, but there really wasn't anything that told me how it came to be important, and why the imperial panels, which represent the Emperor Justinian and his wife Theodora, are so prominently displayed in the most one of the most important churches. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. Why doesn't it tell us how these imperial rulers from Constantinople who never left Constantinople except to go and take the waters in the hot springs nearby. Really, they they didn't travel at all. They never went to Italy. Why are there portraits there? Why hasn't this this guidebook explained? It just says these are the portraits of the emperor and his wife. So I decided then I really ought to look and, and see whether I couldn't do something better. And it was a very immediate commitment to try and explain this fact, but it took me a very long time to get to the bottom of it. (laughs) However, the book is the result of my efforts. (laughs) Perhaps then we should begin by explaining why Ravenna is so important. I mean, what role does it play 
broadly speaking, in the history of early Christendom and, and the Mediterranean world during that time? Because that's something it, that is easily overlooked. It's, it could be overshadowed previously by Rome earlier. And then, of course, you have its you know contemporary uh, Byzantium, which is, is so much uh, more, or Constantinople, which is you know so much more visible and, and so much more uh, written about. Where is Ravenna and all that? Well, it must have been quite a small Roman city, quite typical uh, of Roman cities, all the facilities that Romans required, theatres, hippodromes, uh, probably a garrison. It had the benefit of being uh, very close to the sea, much closer than it is now, and a huge port that had been built specially on the orders of Julius Caesar to house the East Mediterranean Roman fleet. So the fleet that dealt with the, the, the problems in the east was based at Classe, uh, very close to Ravenna, and the fleet that dealt with the western Mediterranean was based close to Rome. And from its connections, this big harbour, it had a lot of uh, trading connections, and of course it was used uh, for travellers because travel by sea between uh, Italy, especially eastern Italy, and the East Mediterranean was best done through Classe. So it had a very, it had a sort of importance uh, as a naval base, but it's really only after the Emperor Honorius decides to move his court there that it becomes the centre of a much, much bigger um, administration. Um, Honorius decided to leave Milan, which was a very much larger city than Ravenna, but it was difficult to defend. It had a very large circuit of walls and not enough men to defend the walls. So although the emperor could have stayed in Milan probably quite safely, when Attila the Hun threatened, when Alaric the Goth was at the doors, he decided that it would be a good idea uh, to move to a smaller place that was more defensible, and Ravenna was chosen because it did have good defences, and of course it had this major harbour, which meant that if the Emperor Honorius was really terrified, he could always get on a ship and say, sail to Constantinople, where my brother, Emperor Arcadius, will shelter me. Um, but he didn't have to do that because he was quite safe in Ravenna. So what does the relocation of the imperial capital to Ravenna mean for the city in the long term? I mean, it, it, you, you, this is basically what you're, one of the things that your book describes, which is how Ravenna is transformed by this elevation of its importance. But what, you know, what are the dynamics about it? it? It's not simply a matter of a king or an emperor who simply you know, pulls up stakes and, 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 and plops himself down. You describe it. It's a, it's a much more involved process and one that is, you know, it requires a, a far greater transformation than simply moving from one home to another. Absolutely. It must have been an enormous upheaval. First, the emperor arrives with his court, and his court is not just a few hangers-on. It's a very, very large administration of people who look after his costumes, his bed clothing, his linen, his his symbolic uh, um, crown and orb and scepter, all the crown jewels, as well as his his horses, his weapons. Everything has to move with him, and that's just his personal things. In addition, there's the whole administration of the Western 
Roman Empire. And in the early 5th century, there were still many, many provinces in what we call Western Europe that were ruled by the emperor, in this case Honorius. Uh, and when he decided to move to Ravenna, this small city suddenly became an imperial capital, like Trier in nor- the north of Germany, or Milan before it, uh, and Arles in southern France, which had all been used as imperial capitals, but which required an enormous building program to accommodate all the administrators who moved with the bureaucracy of the of running a whole empire, well, half an empire, because it's only the Western Roman Empire. The other half was based in Constantinople and was run by Honorius's older brother, Arcadius. And that was a city, Constantinople, that had been built as New Rome with all the facilities that you need for an expanding bureaucracy, all the Senate, all the big families that live or want to live in the capital city. In Ravenna, which was a small place, they simply had, they simply had to expand exponentially very quickly. Just, for example, to house the, the, the troops, because we learn of a garrison of 4,000 um, that arrived in the early 5th century from the east. Well, you can't just put 4,000 soldiers in tents forever. They have to, if they're going to stay as a garrison and defend the city, they have to be accommodated in proper buildings, and they have all their equipment with them, and you know, a lot of this is cavalry, and they have horses. Horses take up a lot of room, and they need a lot of feeding. There are all these extra things which became absolutely critical, and Ravenna suddenly found itself with this imperial stature and had to behave in a very different fashion. And I imagine the population immediately sought employment and got employment in servicing the imperial court and expanding the city physically by building new walls and new areas, new palaces. The emperor had to have a palace. All his major uh, administrators wanted their own bases, and then they all had secretaries. And all the uh, uh, paraphernalia of an imperial administration that was very developed, that kept records in triplicate, that had a very uh, efficient administration that that got in the taxes and paid the army to defend the empire. And all that suddenly landed in this small city and it reacted very properly with this explosion of building and transformation, uh, which made it not so much a bigger city, although it was, of course, bigger, but what I mean, it, it didn't become another huge city full of many, many, many more people, but it rose to the challenges of being the imperial center and performing the roles of an imperial capital. And as you describe throughout the book, the successive rulers of the city sought to leave their own imprint on it. And that, that's one of the things that I thought was so fascinating was reading about how these successive figures, you know, various emperors and bishops, placed this stamp on the city that remains to this day. And the first of these that that you uh, that you feature is uh, Gallup Placidia, uh, 
and and she she's one of those women I, I i was thinking as i was reading your book she really defies the notion that history is is the story of men because you have this fantastic figure who is uh just plays this you know you know this amazing role, not just in terms of the history of, of the empire, but more specifically to, to shaping, physically shaping uh, Ravenna as it would uh, move onward. And, and she did so at such an, a critical time when it's beginning, when the city's beginning to embrace this role and it's beginning to you know, need the, 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 the uh, buildings and stature that you know, an imperial capital requires. Yes, she does seem to have taken this very seriously. And I think she also had very ambitious ideas, big ideas. She was not for having, uh, accommodating herself to any sort of small place. So new palaces, and of course, her, her son Honorius probably built, uh, her, sorry, her half-brother Honorius. She was the younger half-sister of Honorius and Arcadius, born of the same father, but a different mother, because Theodosius I's first wife had died. However, Galla had been orphaned as a child. First her mother and then her father died when she was very young, and she'd been brought up probably in the west between Milan and Rome by um, another imperial princess, uh, Serena, and her husband Stilicho, who was one of the major generals. So she knew about how empires celebrated their rulers. She knew about the importance of palaces and the grandeur of architecture, but she was also a very committed Christian and she wanted to promote the cult of Christianity and make it grander and more impressive. And in this, she was very much helped by the Bishop of Ravenna, uh, a saint, Saint Peter Chrysologus, who was obviously a very impressive uh, figure, wrote many sermons that were repeatedly copied and revised and reused. And together they decided to build the grandest possible buildings to house the Christian cult, the cathedral in which the the bishop uh, officiated, and other buildings that Gala Placidia decided uh, were for for her use or for the use of of the local population. Um, There are several monuments that we know, one dedicated to the Holy Cross, one to St. John the Evangelist, and there is, of course, a very, very exquisite building that's known as her mausoleum, though she was not buried there. But it was a chapel connected to the Church of the Holy Cross, and it is the one part of that church that survives, and I think most people know it because it has these very spectacular mosaics under a starry sky, dark blue with stars set in it that, in gold that twinkle in the light. Um, doves are drinking at a fountain. Deer are grazing. The saints are portrayed in the ceiling. And the, the good shepherd with his sheep represents Christ, the shepherd. And of course, this is, it's still a most extraordinary, tiny building very intense and the fact that it has survived I think is partly because it was independent of the, the of the other church of the Holy Cross which was which was destroyed and then rebuilt so the area most of Ravenna has indeed been built over again and again but not to the same extent as Rome and Constantinople 
and the major buildings that we can identify with Gala Pasidia still stand, although the Church of St. John the Evangelist was regrettably completely bombed and fell down completely during the Second World War by Allied forces, I regret to say. And it has been restored, completely restored and faithfully rebuilt according to the plans which were known and drawings uh, preserved from antiquarian uh, observations made much earlier. Uh, so it still stands, although it doesn't have, sadly, its internal decoration, which must have been very spectacular. But that's the way she wanted to put Ravenna on the map, not just as an imperial capital, but as a Christian capital. And yet it when she dies, her son of Valentin III moves back to Rome. And I read that as a sense that Ravenna just simply at that time didn't quite have the, the glamour or, 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 or prestige that the old imperial capital did. And yet, as you just, you go on to relate, it's a decision that, that you know, he, he, he pays the ultimate price for because it, 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 and it confirms exactly why the capital was moved to Ravenna in the first place because you have the sack of, of, of Rome by the, by the Vandals. And during that time with that, uh, you know, despite that, or perhaps because, in part because of the destruction, Ravenna continues to build upon the statue. Only now we're not talking just about emperors, we're also talking about the bishops and this outsized role that they play in the municipal history of the city. Yes, they of course had to. They, their stature was raised because as soon as Ravenna became an imperial capital, the bishop had to be. Uh, he had to become a, a more important bishop, eventually archbishop, and several uh, subordinate saf suffragans sees churches nearby were taken away from the Church of Milan and put under the control of Ravenna. And indeed, the Church of Ravenna began to accumulate territory, estates on which it drew for its sustenance, taxes, and actual um, taxes in kind. Um, so we learn from some of the records that survive that there were certain regions where there were marshes. Ravenna is full of very, very marshy, watery landscape because it's in the estuary of the River Po. And in these lakes, there were presumably ducks and other uh, fish, and these uh, lakes were to provide so many, so many ducks, so many fish, so many rabbits, so many other things um, for the Archbishop of Ravenna. And that's that this is certainly one way in which the Church of Ravenna became a very powerful landlord as well as a very prestigious position. Uh, Everybody in the church in the West uh, knew that to become Archbishop of Ravenna would give you a very, very high status. And it was very much in rivalry with the Bishop of Rome that uh, the Archbishops of Ravenna tried to enhance their capacity, to increase their wealth and their influence. And they did this in part because so many rulers of the city of Ravenna had decided to make it their capital city, to remake it in their own way. So after the final end of the Roman Empire in the West, which we may symbolically see in the retirement that was imposed upon 
young uh, Romulus Augustulus in 476 AD. He was sent off into a comfortable retirement near Naples, and the man who'd conquered Ravenna and conquered most of Italy, northern Italy, Odoasa, a non-Roman military leader, settled in Ravenna and made it his capital. And he undoubtedly wanted another palace of his own, and he may indeed have built churches. We don't have very good records from his reign, but there is absolutely no doubt that he chose to stay in Ravenna and make it the centre of his administration rather than going to Rome where, of course, there were still senators of the old style who were very Roman senators who had no truck with these people they called barbarians, non-Romans. And there was the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, who was another very important figure, very powerful. And these non-Roman rulers who took over in the West were nearly all of them Christians but of the Arian variety, that's they followed the doctrine of Arius, which had been condemned by the majority as heretical. Nonetheless, they stuck to their definition of Christianity and built churches in which they could celebrate their faith. And they didn't necessarily get along very well with the Bishop of Rome, who regarded them as heretical. Uh, but he had to admit that they were indeed Christians. They worshipped the same God. They were not like uh, Jews, uh, and they were not like those old uh, Roman senators who still wanted to celebrate the ancient gods and make um, offerings of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and burning incense uh, in honor of, of Jupiter and Juno, the other gods and goddesses. So there was a certain recognition that these newcomers, non-Roman rulers, were at least Christian. But they were the wrong sort of Christian. And this led to tensions, uh, quite obviously, which meant that quite possibly the bishops of Rome were not very well disposed towards them, and vice versa. This is the period, though, that you describe where the Christian population of Ravenna goes from being predominantly Aryan to the point at which the Catholics uh, become the majority. And this happens during the reign of, of Theodoric the Goth. But it's not just a matter of Arianism and, 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 and Catholicism. You also have, uh, shall we say, a, a renewed or new force coming in in terms of the Byzantines. And that when you get to the 6th century CE, you have Justinian, who places this fascinating imprint upon Ravenna, as you describe, despite the fact that, as you've already noted, he never actually once sets foot in the city. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the really interesting aspect of this impact of Constantinople is due to the fact that the Gothic king Theodoric had been held as a hostage in the imperial court in Constantinople for 10 years. As a young man, he was probably there between the ages of about eight and 18, a decade in which he grew up witnessing the imperial court being shown off whenever the emperor wanted to say, here are my hostages, you know. They're all here because if their fathers don't keep the treaty, you know, we can, we can take revenge. So the young hostages, and there were, several, we, we 
know of them, Georgians, Goths, other Germanic, um, the sons of Germanic leaders. They were brought up in the imperial palace in their own quarters, but nonetheless they were educated and they were shown off on certain days when they had to perhaps wait at table for the banquet at the banquets. They certainly participated in the great processions because there were many, many, many uh, Christian processions to the churches of the martyrs, uh, to the tombs of the emperors, uh, and they were constantly aware of what was what was what, of the ceremonial, the ritual of the Byzantine court, which was exceptionally rich and drew on very extensive traditions that had almost died away in the West. And of course, he was living in Constantinople, which was the great metropolis, the largest city in the known world outside of China in the late 5th and 6th centuries. So it was an extraordinary experience for him to grow up in this city where he was understood to be a, a hostage. He was of Gothic origin. He was an Aryan Christian, not a Catholic. And yet he, in it, it imbibed all this notion of grandeur and brought it with him when he finally persuaded the Emperor Zeno that he should go and defeat Odoacer in, in Italy and establish uh, a, his, a kingdom that would be ruled by himself, Theodoric, under the guidance of the Emperor Zeno in Constantinople. So he wasn't an emperor, he was a king, but he was quite a powerful king, and what he brought to to Ravenna was the determination to make it as grand as Constantinople, and to make his court as impressive and as beautiful and as elegant as everything he'd witnessed in Constantinople. And that meant that the stamp of Eastern ceremonial and traditions that involved things like diplomacy, training diplomats, training interpreters, having a bureaucracy that was bilingual. All these things were inherited or brought. He he had observed them and he brought them with him from Constantinople to Ravenna. And so in some ways, he serves as the vanguard for the much larger Byzantine presence that was going to characterize so much of the history of Ravenna from, say, the you know, late uh, from from, say, the sixth century CE uh, on through about the ninth century. And you have this with Justinian with his uh, the, you just uh, described, for example, uh, the mosaic at San Vital de Ravenna and and. Which I, I I looked at myself and I thought it was was, it was an amazing uh, mosaic uh, in in terms of you know representing the the Byzantine effort to assert themselves in the city, which to me also spoke to just how important Ravenna had become by this point. There was no more thinking that it was a, a you know a, a, a poor stepsister to Rome. It was instead the place where you wanted to represent yourself to people in the West. Yes, indeed. And there are no comparable mosaics of Justinian and Theodora in Rome, nor in Constantinople. We do know that, of course, in Constantinople, there were endless images of the emperor and his wife, statues, mosaics, frescoes, many, many, many images, and none of them have survived. So whenever you hear about Justinian and Theodora, you see reproduced the mosaics from San Vitale in Italy. 
where they never went. And that is the mystery, really, That is the, the, that I had to solve. And it is due to the fact that in 540, imperial troops under the general Belisarius entered the city, kicked out the Goths, took the Gothic king and his queen and many of the courtiers back to Constantinople and established, left behind, an administration that had been based on Constantinople, on, on bureaucrats and uh, uh, administrators from Constantinople who stayed in the West and imposed the, the, the arrangements that, that, that Justinian wished to have. This Ravenna now became the centre of imperial government in the West, in Italy. And of course, although it was very difficult for the administrators to govern the entire Italian peninsula and Sicily and all of southern Gaul and parts of, of the north of the uh, Adriatic and Croatia and Slovenia to the other uh, on the eastern shore of the Adriatic. Nonetheless, that was the ambition, and Ravenna was to be the centre for that administration. And indeed, it was, right, until 751, when the city finally fell to the Lombards and other non-Roman peoples that had established themselves in northwestern Italy um, around Genoa. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon the Lombards, because they start to assume a much larger presence in your narrative uh, at this point in the book. Could, could you talk about you know who, uh, who they were, uh, what they represented? Because it was, in, in some respects, it, you know, I, I was thinking about it as I was reading it, it's, it's almost a, a reversion back to some of the challenges that Ravenna and, and Italy were facing uh, two, three centuries previously. Yes, it is very similar because like many uh peoples without a fixed abode, without a fixed area that they could call their own territory, the Lombards had moved from somewhere out in the east. And they are found, um, there is evidence that they were burying their dead in an area of northern Germany, just south of Denmark, contemporary, present-day Denmark. And they clearly were moving south, like most um, northern peoples, who doesn't want to cross the Alps and live in sunny Italy? And this was indeed <laughs> a constant attraction. Just stories of Italy uh, were enough to make them want to go. And indeed, they gradually moved further south, and in 568, their king led them into northern Italy and with great success conquered a, quite a substantial area, which the forces in Ravenna were unable to defend. So that was the first clash. And during the 570s and 80s, it was quite clear that the military organization that had been left or had been arranged to defend Ravenna was not capable of defending the area on the other side of the Alps. Very, very important to remember that Italy is completely divided uh, by the long uh, vertical, not, not very vertical, but the slanting area of the Alps, which descend from uh, um, the Alps, the Apennine range. Uh, the Apennines are what divide 
western from eastern Italy. So Ravenna in the east was always divided from the area where the Lombards settled around Genoa and uh, Pavia in northwestern Italy. And actually the Apennines were a constant barrier which made it very difficult for the Lombards to move further east. And Ravenna was able to hold on to very large areas of eastern Italy, all the Po Valley and the area around the north of the Adriatic and further south uh, until the Lombards established two little dukedoms at Spoleto and Benevento in central Italy. And those remained uh, under Lombard control for many, many centuries and were very, uh, usually very uh, hostile, both to uh, the troops in Ravenna and to the uh, popes in Rome. <laughs> but these, the Lombards were indeed another non-Roman peoples who settled in Italy and built themselves uh, an organization based on the wealth of the land and the uh, incredible riches uh, of, of, of the territory that they could exploit for their own use in their own kingdom. And they too had been exposed to Aryan Christianity rather than the Catholic variety because nearly all the non-Roman tribes that wanted always to get into the Roman Empire had been introduced to Christianity in the form supported by Arius. And this was because they'd had missionary bishops who'd come to them and told them, this is Christianity, this is the true doctrine, this is what you have to believe. And indeed, the great Ulfilas had translated the Bible and many sermons and prayer books into the Gothic script that he invented so that the Goths could worship in their own language. And in Ravenna, they continued to worship in their own language until the end of the 6th century. The Lombards don't appear to have needed language called Lombardic. I mean, they must have spoken something called Lombardic. But they adopted Latin fairly early. But there was still a very strong connection to Aryan Christianity. And in the middle of the 7th century, there was another great resurgence of Aryan commitment which meant that the Aryan rulers started persecuting the Catholics and um, attacking them. And so there was, there was always that tension between the two sorts of Christianity, which were rivals in which the bishops of Rome represented what they considered orthodox. And all these non-Roman uh, kingdoms believed they too were orthodox. Uh, but of course, in the end, um, as we know, the Bishop of Rome was successful in imposing his idea, and his Catholicism became the dominant and only form uh, of Christianity in the West. This is a period where the Byzantines are still, uh, you know, have the, are the predominant authority in Ravenna. But you described how when you get to later in the 7th century, that they are in, for lack of a better word, I have distracted by the uh, resurgence of by by the surge of uh, Arab uh, uh, you know migration coming out of the Arabian Peninsula, the invasions, the expansion of Islam, and and how that you know poses a challenge to Byzantine authority 
to the east. How does that affect Ravenna, and 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 how do and and how and what role do they play in the uh, that that period of Arab conquest, which was affecting not just the Byzantine Empire in uh, the Anatolian Peninsula, but also in Italy itself. Yes, but the expansion of the Arabs out of uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the most extraordinary uh, ex- uh, explosions of uh, the 7th century, and it does alter the whole uh, understanding of the world. It divides the Mediterranean uh, uh, into a southern coast, which is dominated by Islam, the eastern coast totally dominated by Islam from an early date. Damascus was captured in 634, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria followed. Very quickly, these major, major centers that are old established cities, capital cities, and of course, cities associated with the apostles and the birth of Christ and the life of Christ, these were the cities that were conquered by the Muslims very quickly. And the Byzantine forces in Constantinople were quite unable to check their occupation of these very important provinces. The loss of Egypt in particular was almost devastating uh, to the people of Constantinople. They lost, for example, the, the, the annual grain fleet that bought them Egyptian wheat, which they stored in in. in great depots and turned and made into white bread, which was considered an essential part of their diet. And suddenly there was no grain. They had to find alternate sources and they complained that they had to have bread made from barley, which was brown bread. They didn't like it at all. But the arrival of the, uh, I mean, not the arrival of the Arabs, the challenge of the Arabs was not just that they were very vigorous and successful militarily, but they had this new revelation. They said that they they had a new, uh, they, they worshipped the same God, the same Allah was the same God as the God of the Jews and the Christians, but theirs was the final revelation, and it had been made to the Arabs in Arabic. So they had their own holy book, the Quran, and this was the book that was to replace all the Judaic uh, Old Testament and all the Christian New Testament. And everybody was to become Muslim. And of course, it was the opposition to that determination to convert the rest of the world that led to a very, very big change in the east, eastern half of, of the Roman Empire. And eventually, of course, it had enormous impact in the West, but at a considerable, a considerably later date, In the 7th century, the people in Ravenna barely knew what the Arabs were, and Islam was something uh, completely unknown. The popes had heard about it, and and there were lots of refugees from the areas conquered by the Muslims, uh, refugee communities of, of Christian monks and nuns, refugees who simply couldn't live uh, or who fled from the occupiers and made new homes in the West. And so there were there was news about this terrifying new occupation force, but it was very much confined to the East Mediterranean uh, for, for quite some time. And that's because Constantinople was finally successful in preventing the Arabs from conquering the city and making it their base 
because what they set out to do from the very beginning was to capture Constantinople, make it the center of their operations, which would lead them inevitably straight into the Balkans and thereby into Eastern Europe, and perhaps eventually over the Alps and into Italy. And at the same time, we know that there was a very strong movement across North Africa from Egypt. They conquered Carthage uh, at the end of the 7th century, and by the early 8th century, they were into Spain. And that's why there was a Muslim occupation of Spain, and there are mosques and wonderful buildings there, and a whole culture of Muslim-Christian uh, convivencia, which is a very, very important uh, influence in Western European history. But there's no doubt that the, the stalwart Byzantine defense of Constantinople meant that the Arabs were blocked at the Bosphorus. They could never actually capture the city, and instead they turned to the east, and through the late 7th and 8th centuries, they expanded incredibly as far as Afghanistan, and then by sea to Indonesia. And these are the areas which are still uh, Muslim today. So there was a vast expansion of, of Islam and Arab control, and it was indeed an earth-shaking event uh, for uh, the entire Mediterranean. Um, very, very significant. During this period, because of that engagement with the uh, Arab challenge, the Byzantines don't have the ability to devote as much attention to Ravenna. And you describe what is, in effect, a, a practical independence and one that uh, they are, are, are keen to enforce when Justinian II uh, is, is, is the emperor. What role does that play in the uh, Lombard occupation of Ravenna? Do, do, is this a sign that the, the, as they're you know, losing that control, that they're, that they're in effect abandoning Ravenna? Or is, is, or is it reflecting the fact that the Byzantines are, are simply reaching, have reached the limits of what they can do, and that Ravenna was, was bound at some point to become uh, you know, occupied by other forces? I think it's the latter. Um, what I should have said when talking about the Arabs is that, of course, because um, Constantinople and the emperors in the east had to concentrate on blocking any further Arab advance. They abandoned, uh, they didn't leave sufficient military um, garrisons and force or competent direction and generalship in Italy to handle the Lombards. And so there was a protracted, very miserable um, period of warfare, really from the from, uh, throughout the first half of the 8th century, from about 700 to 750, the Lombards were constantly um, expanding their own kingdom at the expense of the territory that had been governed by an imperial governor, the Exarch, in Ravenna. So there was indeed a shifting of attention from uh, the west to the east, where everything had to be brought to, to bear uh, on Constantinople's defence of the, the city and its remaining provinces from the Arabs. And as a result of this reduction in investment in Ravenna, uh, the Lombards took advantage, and indeed uh, so did the bishops of Rome. So that although the bishops of Rome had their own agenda, 
and the Lombards wanted to conquer Rome as well as Ravenna, there was a very interesting uh, era of, of decline and at the same time rivalry over parts of Italy that left Ravenna uh, weaker and even with its, um, there, was, there, was, there was a very major, uh, not a rebellion, but a secession from imperial control. Um, and uh, that was the, this uh, declaration of a, of a more independent local governor, government in Ravenna was what prompted the Emperor Justinian II to seek revenge and come and capture and carry off as captives the Archbishop Felix and all his staff and all the senior people, all the sort of uh, elite of Ravenna, and they were taken off to Constantinople and put on trial. And it was a very, it's a very unpleasant episode. It resulted in the uh, Archbishop Felix being blinded and sent into exile and the death of most of the senatorial figures and the elite of, of, of Ravenna. And those that escaped to go back to the city um, were, they, they were very few. So there was a tremendous reduction uh, in uh, capacity and uh, prestige and feeling of, of well-being uh, after that raid. And although Justinian II did not survive very long, um, and was replaced by several military uh, leaders uh, in Constantinople. Ravenna, it was very hard for the archbishops to regain their prestige, although they still had their estates and they still had some wealth. Uh, and the exarchs who ruled in Ravenna in the 8th century um, have very little uh, in the way of resources, certainly not enough military men to defend the city, certainly not enough financial support to buy off uh, the Lombard advance, because the Lombards frequently agreed to a peace treaty if they would receive a very large amount of money. Uh, and these treaties were signed, hostages were exchanged, uh, there should have been uh, temporary lulls, but they did prove temporary. And by 750, um, uh, the Lombard king Eistulf was at the walls of Ravenna, and on this occasion, he was determined not just to get inside the city, but to establish himself in the palace. And in 751, he issued his first laws in Palatio. I am in the palace of Ravenna. He got into the, the centre of, of the city and he wasn't going to move. <laughs> he did have to go on and do more, you know, more fighting and so on, but he did leave behind a, a Lombard administration, which effectively had to deal with the archbishop who was still very powerful and it was a, undoubtedly this marks a change a really substantial change in the city's position and it is the beginning of the recession the, the decline which is gradual and which is uh, not particularly it's not marked by any great disasters the archbishops become the only people of great wealth because they have through the church they have all this uh, these estates which provide taxes and um, food and drink and they are able to assert their authority over the population and they see, they and they seem to uh, be become very 
excellent administrators. It's a common feature in the West in the 8th century. Bishops often have to take over because there's no civilian power or military ruler who is competent to, to govern. But in Ravenna, they do very well um, until Charlemagne uh, invades at the request of the Pope. And then northern Italy is taken over by the um, Frankish uh, ruler and, uh, again, a different a different. Uh, political situation but I think the interesting thing is that Ravenna survives because of its imperial associations because of its spectacular churches and their decoration because it's become a little bit of a of a, of a backwater the port is no longer functioning as a very important uh, centre for people coming and going uh, across the, the Mediterranean but it does survive with all its images and with its sense of having been a very important imperial capital. And that's what later rulers seem to admire. They want to go back to Ravenna and have another look. Charles went several times before he became Charlemagne, and he must have looked at that mosaic of Justinian in the church of San Vitale. And I think he thought to himself, that's how you be an emperor. That's how to be an emperor. You've got to wear the crown and hold this great dish of gold that you're presenting to the church. And you've got to have this purple cloak. And you've got your orb and scepter. And you've got these wonderful uh, military, uh, a, a military escort all in their grandest uniform, the most spectacular colored uniforms. And then on the other side, you've got the Archbishop Maximian and his clerics. And this is the union of the church and state that every ruler wants to maintain. And, and that gets to you the point at which you end the book, which is where you talk about, in effect, how Ravenna is almost this crucible at which you start to see this I, the, what we would come to recognize as Europe, the, 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 this fusion of, of, of classical and, and Christian and Germanic concepts uh, really coming together and, 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 you know, catalyzing in a way that, that, you know, it really is not doing quite the same way anywhere else in the Western world. Yes, I think it is in Ravenna that we find this combination. And Theodoric is, is, it personifies it in a way because being the leader of a Gothic community that was a minority, and Aryan Christian, again a minority and condemned as heretics by the other Catholics, um, he knew he had to accommodate to this new environment. And he understood that it was absolutely no use trying to do battle with the other Christians. They were as Christian as he was. He said, you do your, you, you have your churches and do your liturgy and we'll have our churches and we'll do our liturgy. We do it in Gothic, you do it in Latin and we'll let the Jews get on with their ceremonies in the synagogues. And that was one of the things that really uh, struck me, how interestingly that Theodoric had been a mi uh, in a minority. He understood the difficulty of leading um, a uh, the life as a as a despised minority, barbarian, Aryan Christians, and he said, "Look, these are these these are the communities that live here. They have their own churches called synagogues. Just let them do their thing, 
because we trade with them. And look, they lend us money, and they also um, they're goldsmiths. They can make they've made very beautiful things. They've made a very beautiful crown. There's a description of a crown which Charles saw when he visited Ravenna, and he asked the Jewish goldsmith what it was worth. And the man replied, if you took all the value of all the churches in this place, you would still not have the same value as this crown, your majesty. And these these were the sorts of things that uh, were contributed to the great wealth of the city and to the success and the aura of magnificence that Ravenna wished to maintain. And it's in the law code of Theodoric that we find this statement that you cannot force a man to believe it's his duty to believe what he thinks. And if you start to force him to do uh, something else, you're, you're, you're attacking him, you're having a war with him. And so this notion of a relative tolerance, only relative, but nonetheless much better than we observe in other parts of the West at the same time, in the, in the Visigothic kingdom of Spain, the Jews were quite severely persecuted in many parts of the West, uh, Aryans were persecuted or they persecuted the Catholics and fought over things. And Theodoric had set a new standard whereby a relative tolerance was to be built in to the system of coexistence. And that, I think, is something that we've, we really value in European civilization. However tiny it is in comparison with world cultures, it is nonetheless a feature which I think we treasure, and if we don't treasure it, uh, we'll all be at war with each other forever. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I'm still very interested in the cosmographer of Ravenna. There's a little chapter in this book about a, 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 an unknown person, the Anonymous, who wrote a history of the world recounting how it had been created by God, see the book of Genesis, and then all the different areas of the world that he knew. He knew them mainly from lists of Roman cities in Roman provinces, and he also knew about rivers and mountains and the people who lived in these territories, and he wrote a description of them, which is really very, very curious. And so I am pursuing my interest in the cosmographer and hope to find out more about how he got all that information and what he really understood about the origin of the Goths, because he says he comes from this place called Scansa, which is up near Scandinavia. And uh, he knows that they came from the north. But did he perhaps have records that had been written in Gothic? Because, of course, Gothic... We know that it survived. There are Gothic Bibles. There are lots of sermons in Gothic. There are fragments of descriptions of other things written in Gothic. And it was a different language from Greek or Latin. And certainly it had been spoken in Ravenna. So I'm tr trying to work out what the cosmographer had at his disposal in libraries or in his own collection, because it make, he makes it quite clear that he's not a traveller. He's not somebody who's, who's gone out and got on a boat and sailed to Constantinople, although many people in Ravenna did. He's, sat, he's sitting at home comfortably in his armchair, working out how to describe all the areas of the world that he's never visited. But he says, I know them as well as people who have, 
uh, gone to these places because I've read all about them in my books. <laughs> well, it sounds like a fascinating project, and I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Judith Heron, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me. Bye now.